So it feels a little bit interesting to me. I thought it wouldn't be as difficult as it is to do Romans in four weeks, um, but it's proven to be really difficult. Um, <laughs> In some sense, but not really. It's just that I always have so much more that I want to say that I have time to say. And of course, there's all these things I want to stop and zero in on. And this has been a little bit more of an overview of Romans and trying to pick up on the major themes of, of Romans and to uh, apply them to our lives today as we talk about how Paul was applying them to the lives of followers of Jesus in his day. And um, a couple of the things that I want you to keep in mind thus far is that, you know, Paul, in his context, and his historical context, is dealing with a lot of different people of different walks of life, Jews and Gentiles, and trying to figure out how to live life together, united under the headship of Christ Jesus, his body made up of many different people from many different walks of life, not unlike where we are today. I mean, we might not talk on the terms necessarily of, of Jew and Gentile, but we certainly talk on the terms of men and women, young and old, rich and poor, talk on those terms all the time. And we should be talking about being united in Christ Jesus on those terms rather than trying to attain to a, a singular thing instead of all trying to become u- uniform. We should seek to become unified in Christ Jesus. I'm going to just give you the kind of thre- the, the the overview, the, the thesis, if you will, of tonight's message right up front. That way, if I blow it later, I can at least say that I did that. <laughs> it's it's this. God's love is greater than our failure. His mercy is more powerful than our rebellion. And His power is not only greater than our weakness but it's manifest in our weakness. God's love is greater than our failure. His mercy is more powerful than our rebellion. And his power is not only greater than our weakness, but manifest in our weakness. This is the message of the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. This is the message of the cross. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of God. This is the heart of if you will, of our God. Paul, the apostle, writing in Romans, talking about the grounds of God's embrace of us, the basis of God's embrace for us, the reason of God's embrace for us, in Romans 11.32 puts it this way, for, this is kind of crazy, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Really? Why? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. So that he might have mercy on everyone. He has bound everybody over to disobedience that he might have mercy on everyone. Astonishingly, the result of disobedience to God is mercy for those who desire it. That seems like it's that's crazy talk, it seems to me, right? But God just levels the playing field. Everybody is bound over disobedience because God's mercy overcomes it. Consider this then. If being embraced by God is based on his mercy, then there is no rebellion that can get in the way of that grace, except, as we will get into, the rejection of his mercy. There isn't anything else that can get in the way of his mercy to us. Not a single thing besides saying, I don't want it. Not for you. Not for the person you're sitting next to. 
Not for your acquaintances, not for your friends, not for your enemies. There is nothing that can get in the way of God's mercy. Except for the desire not to receive it. Or thinking one doesn't want it or doesn't need it. Again, this is the message of the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, the message of the cross, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, the message of God, and this is his heart for us. This was also, though, a stumbling block. This is one of the key points that Paul is talking about in Romans 9 through 11, which is what we're covering tonight. It's a stumbling block. This whole message of Jesus is a stumbling block to some. In order to understand why it's a stumbling block, this message of mercy, we have to take into consideration, and we'll do it via Paul's, Saul's own, Saul, the Saul dude that became Paul after his encounter with Jesus. His kind of trying to put piece together a little bit of his worldview prior to his experience with Jesus. And we've, we've done this a little bit already, but tonight we're just going to talk about it simply in these terms. Jews versus Gentiles. Seahawks versus Patriots. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. No, Jews versus Gentiles. It's something like this. The Jews are in. This is Saul's, the formerly man formerly known as, as Saul. Now, Paul, his, Jew, the Jews were in and the Gentiles were out when it came to a relationship with God. Jews are in because they are God's elect, his chosen people, and have been given the law, given the Torah, given the Old Testament scriptures, the instructions on how to live, and they, they, they have it. They possess it. It's theirs, given to them. Mm, look at how, how good we are. They keep it. And they are elect in their minds, in Paul's mind, and Saul's mind, to the exclusion of every, everybody else. But Paul's transformed worldview after his encounter with Jesus is radically different. Although there's a lot of similarities. He understood that the Jews were indeed elect. They were. They were chosen. God was using them for a specific purpose, but they were elect to bring about God's purposes of inclusion of all through the receiving of mercy, rather than God just choosing them to choose them and exclude everybody else. God's point in calling and electing Israel was to include, not to exclude people. In Romans 9, Paul tells of the story of Israel's election by grace, followed swiftly by rebellion and failure and restoration by grace, the mercy by which they were originally received. All of this because of God's faithfulness. If we look at Israel's story throughout the Old Testament, we kind of see this thing repeated over and over on a macro and a micro level. Call, or creation, fall, or rebellion, Redemption, mercy. Just like repeat that over and over and over and over again. God calls people, creates people. They rebel against him, the fall, the sin, whatever you want to refer to it as. It's touched us all. And the redemption by mercy it is there for those who want to receive it. This over and over and over again. And their relationship, Israel's relationship with God was always based on his grace-giving love. Always. It's always the 
what they should have understood they're established by. Forgiveness was always before them. He talks about how even election was a gift before Jacob or Esau did anything good or bad. God had a child of promise. Before they did anything good or bad, they both did a lot of bad. (laughs) It wasn't based on that, though. It was based on these purposes that God has in expressing his mercy to a world that so desperately needs it. I talk about how this is what the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, was all about. I know that people missed it. Saul, before he became Paul, missed it. He didn't understand. We oftentimes miss it today if you try and read your Old Testament and don't pay much attention to the story of how it's fulfilled in Jesus. It gets really confusing, and we can justify an awful lot of crazy things in reading it. But if we focus on a text like Hosea for a moment, the prophet Hosea. You guys know the story of the prophet Hosea? I would not want to be the prophet Hosea. I'm just saying, right? He, his life became a living example of God's mercy of God's faithfulness despite his bride, his people's faithlessness. Go and read Hosea. It's a fascinating story that tells us an awful lot about God's faithfulness and also tells us an awful lot about how we should act with one another today. Or what about the psalm? Keeping in mind this is from the Old Testament scriptures. What about the psalm that we read today? Kat, do you have that copy? Because I just somehow... Oh, no, here's mine. I found it. Just listen, listen, listen to this when it comes to how God is forgiving and, and faithful. Not God's re- relationship with God, Israel's relationship with God was never about just keeping something perfectly or doing something right. It was always about God's mercy and faithfulness. Out of the depths I cry out to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. With the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is what we discover. This is what we find in Jesus. It is and always was a misappropriation of the Old Testament law the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, to think that God's favor was found by having the law or by works of the law. The law, if anything, itself made it clear or should have and should to us that God's favor is simply by grace received through faith. He's gracious with us. He is kind with us. He is merciful to us. Many of the Jews in Paul's day and of the days of the early church, and Paul has to address address this, were excluding themselves 
from being part of God's people because they were rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting mercy. There were exceptions. Paul himself was a Jew, and he got Jesus. He understood Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus. God awoken faith in him for Jesus and for this way of mercy and this way of kindness. But the question of the day for Paul in this context was, my goodness, how in the world could this be so seemingly clear for everybody else but the very people who possessed the law, who had the Torah, missed it? They missed it. They didn't understand it. They didn't grasp that this is what God was all about, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well, for the world. I can't help but wonder myself if I was a Jew in Jesus' day or in Paul's day and I had the Old Testament scriptures before me, would I have understood? Would I have gotten what God was up to in the world by expressing his mercy through sending his one and only son to the world to die for the world? Would I have gotten that? Would I have understood that? Would I have embraced it? Or would I have just tried to be the best exclusionary lawkeeper that I possibly could? In light of the fact that it's so easy for us as Christians to shrink back in those kinds of directions, despite the fact that we see Jesus, I imagine I would have. I imagine I would have been Saul, not Paul, save an encounter with Jesus. It's important for us to understand, though, that rejecting grace by faith as a means of our relationship with God is to exclude ourselves, as grace is the only way to a right relationship with God, and that we must embrace the fact that this is extended to all. But again, this very message, this message that Jesus came to live and to proclaim became a stumbling block. To the Jew in Jesus' day and maybe to the arrogant Christian in our own day, being set right with God is received by grace, really? By faith, really? I don't need grace. People want to work for it instead of receive it freely. And then we want exclusive rights to it. The Jews of Jesus' day wanted exclusive rights to it, and we today sometimes want exclusive rights to this way with God, excluding mercy. And we don't want a crucified Messiah, much in the way that in Jesus' day people didn't want a crucified Messiah, because that's way too challenging. We think, as they did, grace is not supreme, obedience is better, sacrifice trumps mercy. But Jesus says, no. You cannot work for it. You can only receive it, this saving work of Jesus through mercy alone. You can't, you can't possess it for yourselves. It's God's to give. Paul makes this clear. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will give favor to those he gives favor to. He'll have compassion on who he's going to give compassion to. It's not up to us to decide who he's going to do that with. 
It is mercy my father desires, Jesus says. Mercy, not sacrifice. A contrite heart, not a fatted calf. Don't you, <laughs> don't you see that the sacrifice of a fatted calf on behalf of your sins is obedience to disobedience? The only reason that people had to offer a fatted calf was because they were sinful. They were keeping the law, pointing out the fact that they were broken and sinful and in need of God's mercy. Jesus says to us, you may not think you want a crucified Messiah, but a crucified Messiah is what you need. Because if the Messiah came to destroy those in rebellion, you too would have to go. We don't want a crucified Messiah, but we need a crucified Messiah. Grace by faith has always been how God had received people. And it, not law-possessing or keeping, is central to God's all-wise plan that opens the door of the kingdom of God to everyone who wants to go in. All that while still calling good good and evil evil. It's actually beautiful the way that mercy and grace speaks to the wrongness of our wrongs and the rightness of receiving forgiveness as the way forward. Like, you ever stop and think, like, the reason that we need mercy is because we've done things wrong? <laughs> Which means that, well, maybe we should consider doing something different in the future. It doesn't mean that we're going to get it right all the time. But simply saying to God, can you be merciful to me? A sinner broken. I have a contrite heart. I want you to receive me. Justify me. Embrace me. Love me. Teach me. All of those things imply that what, you do, what you've done is wrong and you want to do something different in the future. That different way only being even possible because God forgives us. That's why that is the way forward. In chapter 10, Paul speaks of the centrality of confessing with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's part of what that stumbling block is. Jesus, crucified Messiah, Lord, God raised him from the dead. Eh. You'll probably have heard this before. Offered up as a formula for how to get saved. Some kind of a transition, transaction. Just recite this formula and everything is good. And I get that. There's probably something of a conversation to be had about, about that. But, but rather, I would want to argue... These are confessions of those who are being saved. And that's a different thing than how to get saved. Rather, these are confessions of people that are being saved, people that are being transformed, people that are receiving God's mercy, receiving God's grace, and becoming different people. The lordship of Jesus confessed with our lips 
is about his message of mercy and forgiveness being found on our lips. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. Jesus is the ruler of my life. Jesus directs my steps. Jesus informs what I do with my life. (laughs) So what does that look like then? Because it's more than simply a formula, right? It's what people do who are being saved. And it's more than just saying, Jesus is Lord. It's living a Jesus is Lord life. Where grace is central. I'm going to run over a few things that I'm probably raise more questions and answers, but that's, that's fine with me. Like, things like dying is not losing. Following Jesus as Lord means that we are confessing that dying is not losing. That things aren't always as easy as they seem to appear. They aren't just black and white. We have to actually think about things, such as like, not everyone who is hung in a tree is cursed. Not everybody who suffers is cursed. Jesus is Lord. Confessing that means a lot more than simply a formula for how to be saved. It means, again, that this message of mercy and of forgiveness is found on our lips And believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Believing in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. In the center of of our being. In the thing that like informs and teaches everything we we do beyond just even speaking. But like everything that we do is center of being is being informed by by that God raised Jesus from the dead. Is this just the embrace of an idea? Or is it something bigger than that? Because if it's just an idea, then it could be a formula, but it's more than just an idea. I promise you, it is much more than an idea. Believing in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead is about sharing in his hope, sharing in his hope, a hope that allowed him to risk death unto death on a cross that he might display his father's love and mercy and kindness. It's about believing in our hearts. It's about trusting in his resurrection, becoming our resurrection. That then empowers us to display the same love of the father to a rebellious world. Because that's what that kind of a display of love ends up looking like most of the time. A man hung on a cross dying. Our message to the world, God's message to the world through us, requires us to have that kind of hope. It requires you to face death because that kind of hope That kind of mercy, that kind of grace cannot hate in the face of rebellion. If there is nothing that can cut people off from God's mercy except for the desire not to receive it, then our actions toward those who need it can't be anything but full of mercy and grace. 
in order to proclaim a love that says, I'm bigger than your rebellion, it must allow rebellion to have its way. Which is what Jesus did. And then he says to us, or prior to doing that, he says to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. We believe in our hearts that God resurrected Jesus from the dead because we, and when we trust that God can resurrect us from the dead, that we can love as prodigally as our Father loves us and find life, be resurrected, share in Jesus' death that we might share in his resurrection. And once you've been gripped by that gospel, once you've been gripped by the gospel that you recognize doesn't exclude anybody walking up and down the streets. I don't care what they're going through, what their life has been, what they're doing right now that doesn't exclude anybody. Once you've been gripped by that gospel, you see everybody differently. You can't see people the same anymore. You can't. Right? You have to see people differently. We can look at somebody and say, my goodness, they really need an awful lot of grace. Yeah, they do. That's the point. That's the point with us. (laughs) Once you've been gripped by that, everything changes. Once you've been gripped by the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God available for anybody to walk into through God's mercy in Jesus Christ. Once that confession is on your lips, that proclamation of God's kindness, and once you believe in your hearts that Jesus has overcome death, once those things have seeded in your minds and in your hearts, we... I'll speak for myself. I'll speak for others I know for sure in this room. There comes this point where you want nothing more than for others to receive it and live in it. Because it's freedom. It's liberation. It's peace. It's joy. It's hope. Changes everything. And you don't want anything more than for other people to hear that same message. You need more than to hear it, receive it, and live in it. In chapter 11, Paul writes about remembering who we are and how we are who we are and not becoming arrogant. He's speaking specifically to the Gentiles not becoming arrogant about the Jews not getting Jesus even though they did. And he's like, hold on a second. Seriously? This is a paraphrase. (laughs) Seriously? Don't even start to go there because you are where you are because of God's mercy. You can't exclude them from being with God ever. Anytime anyone wants to receive the mercy that God has for them, they're in. That's all it takes. We must not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We must... Not think of ourselves as better than anyone, but rather with sober judgment, we must remember that whatever we are that's worth noting is because of God's mercy. 
Forgetting that means we forget the message we have been given of the lordship of Jesus and of resurrection and of forgiveness and mercy. And if we forget that, we are as useless as tasteless salt. Right? Walter Brueggemann. Um, Darren shared this quote with me earlier this week, and my goodness, one of my final preparations of this message, it was just like, it was right on when it comes to how we are supposed to be living in this world as God's people, as his covenant people made his covenant people by his mercy and faithfulness to us. And it kind of connects with this notion of God just being a, a prodigal forgiver, a reckless forgiver. Ah, I don't care what you've done, I'll Erase all that. We're good. It's not just that God forgives, but that God has created a people that have as its main single business in the world the forgiveness of sins, the cancellation of debts, the breaking of the power of fear and death in order to start again. That's what God has given us to do. This is what the resurrected Lord Jesus said. He said this, he said this after his, his resurrection. Peace, a new shape of life. New shape of life, one that's led by peace. I send you. Don't just sit around. You will get power. So go beyond yourself to forgive, to break the cycles of death and to give life a new chance. He continues, this being Brueggemann now, Jesus is a gate crusher. You may have the doors locked for safety and in fear, but these four words are for you. Peace, go, power, forgive. Peace, go, power, forgive. The doors of safety and fear cannot withstand God's power for a new life. The gates of hell cannot resist, not the gates of fear or death. No wonder that when Jesus said these four things, the church was born, a new people in the world. And when you hear them, when you receive them, believe them, and through your words and your life, confess them. It's more than just it's lordship of Jesus and this resurrection of Jesus is more, so much more than just some kind of transaction. It's more than a formula. When you confess them, you will not be the same. Not ever. Because Jesus has taken over the shape of your life. And you can never undo that. You will have to live out what he has said to us, what he's said to you. When you're gripped by that message of Jesus, his lordship, his mercy, everything that he's taught, his defense of powerless people, his love of the best of us sinners. And when we face the, when we face the realities of Jesus' resurrection, we can't but go and proclaim Christ. Mercy to all. Mercy that no rebellion can stand in the way of. Mercy that is simple to be received and 
mercy that will give you life. The world is filled with rebellious people that have been handed over to rebellion that he might have mercy on us all. And our responsibility is to receive that mercy and to proclaim that mercy. In the conclusion of these considerations, what Paul writes, because it's dumbfounding to think about how God has a desire to have mercy on us all if we just want to receive it. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How oh, he would think to do that. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. My goodness, I thought I just had to be really, really good and hopefully get in and exclude a bunch of other people, but no! God wants to receive all of us sinners! He wants to have mercy on us. He wants his love to be known like that. My goodness, are you kidding me? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? And from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your kindness and for your mercy. And thank you for opening our eyes to a, a world that is seen so differently from you, by you, than it is by us. I mean, Jesus, so much I want to be forgiven and I want to find that life in you. But sometimes I don't always want to express it to others, even though that's the job you have given us, the call that you have given us. As your elect chosen people to be about forgiving, about finding peace, about being sent, about receiving power not to use for ourselves, but to forgive. Help us, Father, to be a people about breaking chains, about overcoming barriers, about tearing them down, about finding ways to include people, not to exclude people, because that's what you do, Jesus. Help us to truly have you as the Lord of our lives, calling the shots for us. We love you so much, Heavenly Father. Your ways truly are unsearchable. Let us, as your people, bring glory to your name.